Amen. That was great. Gosh, I'm a little caught up here. Thanks, guys. Oh, Father, you're so good to us. Oh, here's where we've been at. Let me kind of get going here. We've been trying to look at the book of Philippians, and in looking at the book of Philippians, my whole heart has been that we as a church's cornerstone would just move in 100 days this fall into a deeper and a, a nearer relationship with Jesus Christ. We're gonna do what Paul tells us in Philippians. We're gonna passionately pursue Christ. We're gonna, we're gonna know him, right? That's gonna be the endeavor, our one thing, and we're gonna do it with ferocity and, and single-mindedness. That's, that's our heart behind it. And again, not just because it's the endeavor of or the action of, but because those are the actions God has given us by faith to pursue that we might know Jesus. And so that's what we're going after. Now, if you don't know what I'm talking about, there's, a, there's on our website, there's a video on our social media, uh, whether we're talking uh, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, I don't, I, wherever else is out there, Twitter. There's all kinds of places. Go back and watch that video if you don't know. And also, if you haven't filled out the, uh, the, the form that we've asked you to fill out to kind of let us know where you're at and what's going on in your life over this fall. We'd really love for you to do it. It would help us. But the whole goal in going after that is not just that we would go after this single-mindedly, alone, but that it would be something that we would do together. I think sometimes we miss this, is that we get all caught up in our own individual pursuit of God and we miss that he asks us to do it also corporately as a group of people. And so I've been trying to ask these questions this last few weeks, right? So the, the first weekend I preached, I asked this question. I'll just kind of read it to you. How do we make Paul's passion for Christ our passion? And we answered that one. The second week, we, we asked this question. How do we direct this passion for Christ in such a way that we stand firm, not alone, but, but together, and the question that I want to go after today, and I think this is so important to, again, our 100 days of, of pursuing after Christ, of, of knowing him, of making it with Paul, that, that one thing reality for us, is I think we have to ask then, how do we together create like a, an, an atmosphere that stokes the, the flames of this pursuit of Christ? Now, I say all that because there are ways in which I believe you can unstoke them, you can quench them. So in other words, when the text we're going to be at today in Philippians 4, 2, this is what Paul is doing. He's, he's just told him, I, I want you to stand firm in verse 1, and he's then brought up an, an example of, of kind of what he means by that when he gets to verse 2 about how they can douse the flames of this passion. Paul didn't want for them, and I don't think he wanted for us, for us to somehow have this doubt. And said Paul knew that there would be tension, there would be difficulty, and one of the difficulties that came that could possibly now hinder them from going hard after Christ was a, some type of a disagreement between a lady named Giodia and Syntyche. Now with this, again, we don't know exactly what, what was going on at this particular time, but what we do know, and let me just kind of put it is in, in two things. This passage we're about ready to dive into in verses four through nine is one of the most beloved passages in all the Bible. Many of you, it maybe was the first like lengthy passage of scripture that you memorized. And so we have this tendency to take it out of its context, kind of give personal meaning to it. And then we don't mean to, but then we put it back in the Bible with all kinds of personal meaning to it, missing the fact that it was intended to tell us something very powerful about what was going on in that church in, in Philippi so that we then might know how we can redirect our lives. So we have to keep in mind that this is how the Philippians were being asked to go after it. And this was the problem for them between Yodi and Syntyche. 
I think also what happens in here is that these, these two ladies, we don't fully know what was going on. You know, sometimes I've heard it called a squabble or different things, and it definitely could have been that. But I found oftentimes, though, it's not just a squabble. There is deep pain and hurt involved inside of churches sometimes over very difficult things. But Paul's point, I think, in this is regardless of the hurt, regardless of the pain, regardless if this is a big or a small thing, Christ is able, even in the midst of difficulty, to fuel our passion for Jesus. And that's exactly what he's going to get after here. He doesn't want Cornerstone, because I do believe this right now. We are battling inside of not just our church, but churches around our nation. Just the conflict and the, the different things that are dividing us and tearing us apart. We're seeing like the, I think the Ephesians 4.14 reality of, of being tossed to and fro by waves and carried around by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, by all these different things that are deceitful schemes. They're just out there. And we're seeing ourselves now being pushed out to sides as we battle through a virus and social unrest and politics and so much more. But the church was never meant to be torn apart and fractured by things outside of what Paul's talking about. We're pressured in weird ways where we're almost like feel, felt, made to feel shame if, if we're not somehow out there doing it at the pace of the rest of the world. Silence is violence. Or even I heard this one the other day. I thought this was interesting. If you're, if you're quiet, they will riot. And in the middle of it, we're forgetting to ask not what is it that we think we ought to do. What are politicians telling us to do? What is the world telling us to do? We're not asking the question, God, what do you want us to do in the midst of this? Well, in ESV, I love this. Right before he gets into verses four through nine, this is what I mean. He doesn't tell them to agree with politicians or political parties. He doesn't ask them to agree with how the world is seeing this. All of those things are secondary. The church has one thing that we get after that Paul says, and that is knowing Jesus. That's why he says, I want you to agree in the Lord. Another way of interpreting it is, is just that to be of the same mind. We don't mean to, but earthly mindsets begin to sneak their way inside of the church and one had snuck in amongst them. And you can just see this. Paul's concern was that it would quench this single-minded devotion to Jesus, to know him, to love him, to follow him. And Paul didn't want that quenched. So whatever the issue is, Paul says to them, you can see this now, this faithful servant, he talks to them, help him. The church can't lose its voice. We can't argue about things that don't matter. We need the one voice and one voice alone, and that is directed so that the world might know Jesus Christ. So then the question is in this, of not quenching this flame, flame then, let me add another question on top of that, which I think is obvious from this. So how do we do this of the same mind? How do we, how do we agree in the Lord if this is true? Well, I think here's the first thing he gives them. Look at verse four. Here's the, here's the first thing, if we're gonna go hard after this, if we're gonna agree in the Lord, he says, I want you to, watch this, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. This command wasn't the first time we encountered it in Philippians. You can see this like in 2.18 where Paul said, look, you should, you should be glad and rejoice with, with specifically him. You see this in 3.1. He said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So again, this is something he's been building it through. And in case you missed it, he mentioned it at the beginning of, the, of, of verse four and he's gonna bring it up at the end. This joy concept is huge to what's going on within the book of Philippians. 
Now, this word that he's using, rejoice, contains, I think, a powerful meaning. Paul doesn't look, look down in your text. He doesn't say rejoice in your circumstances always. Instead, he says, I want you to rejoice in the Lord always. Paul believed that the, that the ongoing, just the living presence of Jesus Christ was the source, was the power of everything that they were about. When he said, I want you to do this in the Lord, in the Lord, you're gonna see this rhythm, everything that we do through the book of, or through these, through these verses, he constantly is pointing back to Christ. And so therefore, Christ is not only our source of all these things, but he's the means by which we're able to now not only find joy, but to now be joyful. He knew deep within him that even hostile circumstances could not take away our joy, nor can right situations somehow give it to us. And in case you're wondering how important it was to him, again, he's going to repeat it twice. Now, a lot of times then people will ask me, okay, if that's true, then how can Paul command an emotion? How can he command me to joy when it's an emotion? Emotions just come from it. Well, I think this is where we, we kind of understand what's, what, what's, what he's doing here with this concept of joy. I never want to say that emotions are not connected to joy. Without a doubt, emotions are connected to this. However, if we are in the Lord, if we are in Christ, now follow my logic here, and if we are in Christ, then we have the Holy Spirit, and because we have God's Spirit amongst us, we have access now to Christ-mindedness, therefore, we have the capacity to experience joy nonstop. Why? Because joy isn't something we try to find like an Easter egg at Easter time. Joy is something that is in God, that is found in Christ. In fact, the reason that we're called to keep in step with the Spirit is because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience. In other words, we don't have to find joy. When we find Christ, when we are in the Lord, we have access to joy right there. We right now not only have it personally in this temporal way, but when you read the rest of the scriptures, we have it eternally. We have it nonstop for the rest of our existence into time. What this means then is we choose by now going after Christ. What we're saying is by going after him, we are trusting now that he will now give us the joy we need. And our, our one thing pursuit is we go hard after Christ as we make him this single-minded, ferocious devotion to go after him. Joy is found when you find him. Joy, and this is the way I'd say it, never ceases in his presence. Even more, when you look down at this, and I, I just caught it this week, it's in the plural here, which, which means that it's, it's not only a private individual experience, it's something that we're to do together. He was from the South. I always tell you this, Terry, where he grew up, he was right. He, he wants us to know, y'all rejoice. It's not just one of us, it's all of us. He wants us to know, lock shields and go arm in arm. That's what we talked about last week, the single-minded ferocity to know him. Uh, one time I had my kids outside and we, we got an old school uh, a barbecue grill. We got the briquettes, we, we put them in there, we doused it with the fuel, I lit it on fire. And I was trying to tell them that when we light it on fire, we gotta keep those briquettes close together. 
Now, I think what's so beautiful is this is a picture of the church. We're not designed to be all over the place. This was the difficulty of COVID. We were meant now to be together like these coals, like these briquettes. And the closer and the nearer we get, we begin now to exude this, this joy, this heat, this warmth that comes from us. But again, it's not from us. It's because it's Christ in us. This is what he's trying to tell us here. He can command it because he's commanding us to know Jesus. And as we know Jesus, joy begins to now exude from us. And the more now that we're around other believers, this fuel now begins to, begins to fire up and begins now for us to radiate with the heat that Christ wants us to radiate with. So again, I, I think this is the obvious reason for all of us why we need to do this 100 days. We need to do it because we need to become a red hot church fervent after Jesus Christ with just that single minded ferocity. But the first thing is, you can just see this here. If we're gonna, if we're gonna create this atmosphere that he's talking about, this single mindedness, this, this being on the same page thing, we can't do it without joy. That's the first thing. Now look down at verse five. It's, it's really cool. He, he now takes us from joy. And the second thing that Paul gives us now to stoke this flame is, is a little bit trickier to see in our translation that we use anyways, the ESV. But, but there's no doubt about it. It is instrumental to our pursuit of Jesus. Now here's what, here's what Paul wrote. And I'll read it out of the ESV and then I'll kind of show you, I think, a better translation of it. He said, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now, no doubt it could be reasonable, but sometimes we think reasonable, you know, depending on your generation of Star Trek, you know, your Spock, your Data, your, I don't even know what the other generations are because they don't matter. But it's just this side in which it makes us feel like almost there's just, there's nothing come out of us. It just, it makes sense to do that. However, when you, when you understand this word that he's using here, reasonable is probably not a good translation. It, it was somebody that now comes to others who's willing to be benevolent far and above what he's asked to in a fair way. In other words, now, this person is compassionate and not just compassionate like anybody. I think from the text, we have to draw Jesus out of there and understand that's the type of compassion. Gentleness might be your translation that he's talking about. Now, throughout the Gospels, right, when we read them, compassion is a common theme that just weaves itself through Jesus' life and ministry as he walked amongst crowds of people. In their confusion and despair, he felt compassion. It says another place that I was looking at, he was moved with, with compassion. Now, some of our translations, like I said, use gentleness, and I, and I think it's there, but you can just, if you can imagine, it's just these crowds that are pressed down around him almost, almost violently, and he didn't disparage or, or turn away in any way the hurting. Religious political readers, right? They're just, they're constantly pounding on him nonstop. They're mocking him. They're, they're scorning him. But yet, what does he not do? He doesn't now just explode in this fit of rage. Instead, in the power of the Spirit, he demonstrated what humanity should look like in those moments of white hot heat. He was gentle. In fact, let me take this a step further. I think he just oozed compassion. While I was away on vacation, my Wife and I went with some friends to go float on, on inner tubes down this river. Well, the problem with someone like me, uh, I have this problem called pasty white skin. When you're out in the sun too long and you forget to put any type of, of sunblock on, you get done and you are burnt to the crisp. Now, you know this, you don't feel it immediately. So I got home, I was a little stinky from all the things we were doing. So I thought, oh, you know, I'll jump in the shower and freshen up. And I turned it on, I was feeling the, the temperature of the water. And I thought, okay, wow, man, it's just the right temperature. It's nice and hot. I jumped into it. And when I jumped into it, 
I about screamed and just jumped out of my skin as I just writhed in pain as that hot water just came down upon me. Now, let's not lie. I'm a tough man. (laughs) I couldn't wait to get out of that shower. And as soon as I got out of that shower, there's some aloe vera there. And I just took it. And I gooped it into my hand. And I began to just put it all over me. And you know this. when When you put aloe vera on yourself, just that burn begins to now cool as the pain begins to go away. And this is the exact, I believe, image of what Paul is after. We are not to be now these people that are that hot, scalding water in the midst of a world that is suffering through a metaphorical sunburn. We're to be that aloe vera that just oozes compassion into the world in which we live. Now, churches, including Cornerstone, I believe we need this so badly. And like I said, in the heat of our time, we need to be these ones that walk into this this raging inferno, our cultural moment in which we live, that we find ourselves, and we need to be the church that's not marked by arrogance and anger and frustration, shaking our fist. I think of anybody, we should be marked by gentleness, including, I would even say, towards those who violently or even intensely oppose the gospel. Notice what he says here. Paul doesn't say, ooze now this compassion just to brothers and sisters in Christ, which we definitely need, but he says to everyone. So how? Well, at the end of verse five, he gives the answer and it's similar to verse four. He says, the Lord is near. Now, no doubt that word near can be the nearness of Jesus returning to take home his church, no no doubt about it. But when you look at the context, it better fits almost like what Paul was doing in the Psalms, this idea of the nearness of God of being with us. So in other words, Psalm 145, 18, the, the Lord is near to those who call on him, which clearly refers to like the nearness of God to his people. Psalm 119, 151, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. How can we be this? Well, as we now pursue after Jesus Christ, as we make him our single-minded, just ferocious devotion, and we go after him with everything that we are, not only now do we find joy, but we find compassion in our Savior. And we need to be careful here. This oozing, this compassion, this, this gentleness is not something that we can somehow conjure in ourselves. That's why I said the Lord must be near. He's dwelling in us and through us, through his spirit. It's not something that's inherent to us. We don't don't naturally do this, but it's something that's a gift that I think the church is supposed to be, that we're supposed to realize it. So when when things get hot, when we're, we're starting to lock those shields and we start to stand firm together, there is nothing more important in the midst of all that heat, in the midst of not only the heat of those, those, those shields coming together, but the heat of the world in which we live then I think just the salve that is that that aloe vera, that that oozing compassion that he talks about here. We can keep Christ our one thing only if we have that salve of compassion. We're desperate for it. So not only now is it that we need this joy if we're gonna have this same mind together, not only are we need to have this now, this compassion, both of them now coming from God, a gift to us in our relationship through Jesus Christ, But look down at verse six. He tells us something else that, again, I think is so important to our 100 days in the fall. Now, the first thing that you see here, kind of as he he walks it through in verse six, is don't be anxious about anything. Why? Because you know this. There is nothing more counterproductive to me personally or you personally or to a group of people than worry. 
And the heart of worry, I think at the core of it is, is that we don't trust God. I think that's why I see so many Christians, no matter their political persuasion, so worried about who the next president is going to be. I remember in, in 1992, my first election, presidential election I voted in, my dad sat me down and, and it was between Bill Clinton and George W. Bush and, uh, oh, I always forget, oh, Ross Perot, right? And he says, son, this is the most important election of our time. Guess what he told me in 1996? This is the most important election of our time. And all the time I listen in 2020, this is the most important election of our time. Let me tell you this. It may or it may not be the most important election of our time, but our focus is never upon who our political leaders are. Our focus is upon who truly is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and that is not anyone running for president right now. It is only Jesus Christ. He says, don't, don't worry. Well, why, Paul? Because I'm just not supposed to worry? No, because Philippians 2, 9 through 11 tells us that every knee one day will bow to Jesus Christ. He will set things, all things straight. That's where it's going. So, but in the back of our head then, well, how do I trust him? Okay, Todd, it's one thing to say, okay, just don't worry, right? Okay, I'm not gonna worry, but now what do I do? And I'm so thankful Paul tells us what to do. It's not as if we're not supposed to just worry. It's a one kind of movement now where he says in order to cure worry, we need, look at that, prayer. Paul urged them to pray, look, at, I love this, about everything. Look, we, we aren't supposed to, now look down in the text and hopefully you see this. Don't worry about anything. Do you see that? But look what he says here, but pray about everything. It's this beautiful, all-inclusive statement. Worry is ruled out, not because the Philippians, you know, had no problems or they had no stress or they had no things to be legitimately concerned about. Instead, when we look at this text, it was because the Lord is with them. God is greater than the scope of their problems. Verse, verse four and five just flow together. Five right into six to help us understand because the Lord is near. We have nothing now in any case whatsoever to worry about because our king is enthroned above all things. Again, that doesn't take away heartache and difficulty, but we now can as groups of people shift this understanding with a heart of thankfulness. Don't, don't miss that in there. And by praying, it's not that we're doing nothing. Actually, we're doing the something that we're supposed to do as the cure to worry. We're casting all our cares on God. We, we're declaring our absolute dependence upon him. I don't have time to unpack all this, and I wish I did, but the key is that we're to choose to commune with God in prayer. And when we do, it becomes this beautiful divine vehicle that takes us from worry to trust. Now look at the outcome of prayer. I want you to see this for, for individuals, for groups who choose to do so, these ones who now understand that the Lord is near and instead of worrying, we begin to now engage in prayer and, and coming to him in all things. Look at what he says here. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. As with joy and gentleness, Paul now commands this, this single action of turning from worry to prayer because trust is something present with us because the Lord is near. That's his point. The peace he's referring to is that peace God himself possesses in verse nine. Look down there. In verse nine, he calls him the God of peace. 
God lives in absolute assurance of himself. The, the, the Hebrew people had this word, shalom. He was completely right. All things are right at the throne room of God. And he is orchestrating all things, which is why I think Jesus in John 14, 27, he was able to look at these guys who were worried because he was going back to the Father. And listen to what he said to him: Peace I leave with you, guys. My peace I, look at this, You don't have it in you, but I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What? Now notice one last thing, and it's striking because he uses a military metaphor to talk about God's peace, right? The last thing you're probably going to use is a military metaphor to talk about peace, but it's God's peace that literally stands faithfully on duty, guarding our hearts and minds, The hearts and minds of those who pursue Christ, right, with this single-minded ferocity and prayer are safeguarded by God's personal mind-blowing peace. We're kept secure. We're given shalom. And in this peace, you can just see this. It's given regardless of whether our requests are answered or not. In fact, the greatest thing is not the answer to our prayer. The greatest thing is actually the peace that he gives to us in the midst of seeking the answer. It's not about avoiding difficulty and somehow running away from things. In fact, prayer is the exact opposite of running away from something. It is running into something. And when we encounter this peace, what's so cool about it is we then can become peacemakers, which, boy, I'll tell you what, of any time that we need peacemakers in our world, the church needs to be that. That's why I so badly want to pursue this in this 100 days that we have facing us. So to create an atmosphere, again, a cornerstone that, that stokes the flames of this pursuit of Christ, that, that rejoices, right? It, it fuels that in a way that oozes with compassion in the midst of all the kind of the, the burn that's going on around us. And it's not, that sounded funny, like Bernie Sanders, but it's not that burn. It's the prayer now also that replaces worry with fear. He says, look now, there's just one more thing. Now this one more thing, I think this is so important to our time. Not that the other's not, but I just, I really want to highlight this one. We are going to spend time as a church in that 100 days praying, not alone also, but together. But in this 100 days, he's going to give us something that I think we're supposed to go after. We're to to take in information. We're to contemplate it rightly. Look what what he says in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, watch this. Think about these things. I love that. That's what I want you to think about. Now, I don't have time to go through each of them, but, but I think what this means is in, in, in the simplest terms is that Paul believes that you and I tend to become, let's just say the most, what we think about most. And so he's saying to us, be careful what you choose to not only take in, but then to meditate on. And I want you to find the right things, and I want you to continuously, in an ongoing way, keep thinking about those things. Let your mind dwell on these things. Ponder them without ceasing. Keep going. Now, again, as we apply, I think, all these qualities to the the 100 days we have coming up, it's not now just that we think about certain things, but I think you see in this, and one commentator totally put me onto this, 
We also now have to choose to make decisions to stay away from certain things, and some of those things are good. Now, let me, let me show you what I'm talking about here. I'm gonna take everything in verse eight, and I'm gonna make it negative. Watch what it sounds like now, because now we're gonna have to also understand what we're gonna have to reject. Finally, brothers, whatever is untrue, reject that. Whatever is dishonorable, reject that. Whatever is unjust, whatever is impure, whatever is unlovely, whatever is commendable, if there's anything not morally excellent, if there's anything unworthy of praise, don't take in and contemplate those things. Stay away from them. Now, Paul's command also, I think, calls us, and this is the way I, this, this guy put it as I was reading him, it's a deliberate denial. Thinking we ought to demands, as, as one guy, another guy I read put it this week, he said it's the discipline of refusal. It, it's this decision even to forgo good things so that we won't be distracted from the one thing. We're not saying legalistically not to do those things, you know, because it makes you a better person. We, we refrain from those things so we can focus on the one thing that if we go after, we now will find knowing Jesus, the ultimate reality of everything that are going, we were going after. In fact, I think the thing that we should be saying over those, 90 day, or those 100 days is, does it help me keep the one thing, Christ, the main thing? And if it doesn't, for these 100 days, I'm not gonna do it. Now, just because you choose to practice the discipline of denial of certain things doesn't mean, right, that now that we stop there. And the same with prayer is turning away from worry now towards prayer. You and I now must take in not negative inputs in this case, but we take in these positive inputs. So example, I think the greatest danger possibly facing the church right now in the midst of all the busyness and the chaotic kind of intellectual sound bites of the world is that we've lost our heart like we should for God's word. I mean, just think about it. Inside of God's word, it is the opposite of what we're encountering on a daily basis. It fuels us and feeds us. It becomes our honeycomb. It's the, the way in which now we see the world rightly. I take in God's word into my life so that I might not sin against God, that I might keep that focus passionately moving towards him. It's the regular intake of it, not just for a little bit. I was reading a statistic the other day that said as many as 25% of people is all it is that spend regular time in the word over this. And in fact, the other statistic I was looking at said that people are spending potentially four times more on the internet, social media, and all those other things. And I'm saying, let's flip-flop those. And let's be a people that just pour ourselves into hiding God's word in our hearts. We have to make time for meditating in God's word in the, in the early morning, out on our patios or at the lunchrooms of, of where we work or on the couch even late at night when everybody's finally in bed. We must read God's word and then read it again and just make it this reality of something that it just continues to be taken in until the spirit of God speaks to us. And we must pray that the word begins to transform our thinking so that we now might be these people that are full of joy, these people that are oozing compassion, these ones that come before the throne room of grace. In other words, we intake it so that we can know what is true and what's not. And what is true, Paul says, these are the one thing. I think also over this time, I hope you go outside. It says in Psalm 19, right, the heavens declare the glory of God night after night, right? Just speaks to us. As we watch the sun, it says, rise like a champion. It's another declaration of God. And we should every morning that the sun comes up, we should give God a round of applause for the power it takes to orchestrate an entire universe in that way. And I love how he finishes in verse 9. And I think it's appropriate that he, he now overloads us with all these ideals. 
But he ends with, I think here, hope. If his readers, including us, will will take verse nine and all that we've learned, all these different things, we'll make them a part of our lives, both watching those also that follow Jesus Christ passionately. Watch what he says here. You do this, he says, and the God of peace will be with you. If you renew your joy in Christ, if if you will now draw on this compassion that only Christ gives, if you will, you will find peace, the peace of God through prayer, if you will choose to imitate all those around in studying and understanding God's word and contemplating it rightly. I love this. The peace of God will be with you. That's what I want for Cornerstone. I want us to finish those 100 days, not because the 100 days is in. I want it to keep going but I believe we're going to get there, even in the midst of a, an election that I think is going to be crazy no matter who wins. It's, there's no good outcome in my mind. But still, Paul doesn't say rejoice in circumstances. He says rejoice in the Lord. No matter what's going to happen to us, we can have this hope. We can get to the end of those days and we can now stand with that confidence, with the God of peace, knowing that all things are under control. He's moving everything by the power of his will. Nothing will thwart King Jesus. And that's what I love about this text. I remember saying early on, and I I said it pretty regularly in the early days of COVID, that this truly was going to be our time in history to be the church. Right now, if I'm honest, and again, I would include Cornerstone into that, I don't think any church has hit its stride. But I think this 100 days could be powerful for us. I want us to get to December, and I want the world to see a church that has the the peace of God because we know the God of peace. I want us to get there regardless of who our president is, regardless of all the different things going on around us, and just know we have shalom. And I want us then to be a testimony to the world that they demand to ask an answer for the hope that's within us. And so I want us to go for it. I want Cornerstone to go for it. I want us to get together with other people and I want us to read God's word. I want us to pray. I want us to serve. I I want us to go for it. I understand you're tired. I'm tired. My, My family is struggling. It's probably like yours. But I'm just done reacting. It's time to run. Let's be Paul that goes after this with everything that he is. And I believe we'll get December and we won't regret it. Now, some of you have asked in the back of your head, well, like, aren't we supposed to do something? We gotta do something. No, abiding in God, abiding in Jesus is what we need to do. And in 1 John 2, 6, it says, those who abide in him, the promise is, we walk as Jesus walked. We ought to walk as Jesus walked. But we first abide. And then I'll tell you what, in this new year, regardless of what 2021 looks like, let's walk.